financial literacy or illiteracy is a serious problem in this country and especially in certain communities. These things are more dangerous than people really think they are. And people are just being victimized by this. This is an, I, I see it as an epidemic. This is Indebted, South Carolina Public Radio's deep dive into the ecosystem of debt in the Palmetto State. I'm Scott Morgan. In this episode, debt as a public health crisis, and how treacherous that debt ecosystem can be for the unbanked and underbanked. My granddaddy was a farmer. Um, my uncles have always been kind of hard workers with jobs, and so they were kind of a cash pay. And that comes kind of historically from African-Americans, especially in smaller communities, not having access to financing. So when you needed something, you pay for it outright or you pay for it so you didn't lose it. When I first met Felicia Cuthbertson on Zoom, it was still in the throes of the COVID pandemic. And we were supposed to just talk about her student loans. But at some point, we just ended up kind of talking. And eventually, we ended up talking about our parents and how their views on money and credit and finance ended up shaping our own. Now, on paper, Felicia and I could hardly be more different. She's a woman, for one thing, African-American, raised in the rural South. I, on the other hand, am an Irish-Italian-American guy from a once-mighty city in the Northeast that might as well have been where they shot the wire. But we both have parents who didn't like credit and didn't have a lot of access to a good version of it anyway. The kind of parents who took the the bird-in-the-hand perspective and never developed any real financial savvy or literacy beyond always keeping a hand on their wallets. My mom was fortunate. She worked at Savannah Riverside, which is one of the you know better jobs in the community. My dad worked for Avondale Mills um, his entire life. And so with that, I mean, literally, like the Delta loan would call. And so where you do those weekly things and how they bait you in that if you renew now and get your $212 payment back, but it resets the loan, kind of the whole thing. And so he never really transitioned from that world. What Felicia is describing is a revolving loan. It's a lot like a payday loan in that it allows the borrower to reborrow small dollar amounts. And the lender tends to forego accruing interest in favor of upfront fees, say $15 for every $100 you borrow. So rather than calculate compounding interest, you give me 30 bucks, I lend you 200 for a little while. At the end of the loan period, you give me back my 200 bucks and we're square. The catch is, you probably didn't make another 200 bucks in the meantime to cover what you needed that original 200 for. So you probably need to reborrow the money for another $30 in fees. For people like Felicia's dad, that 30 bucks a clip just became another regular bill to help get him through life. It was a worthwhile price to pay to have some extra cash in his pocket, but it was not the kind of loan product that helped build credit. Now, while Felicia says her dad's experiences with his numerous small-dollar financiers soured her on ever seeking out revolving credit, her mother's cash-only financial perspective didn't help much either. I just never saw my mom finance anything. It was if we got furniture, then we got it, and she went and paid for it if we got a mattress. And so kind of having that cash concept. Like, I even I'm still to that thing that if there is something financed, if there's 90 days famous cash, and I'm paying it off in 90 days. Like, I don't want to give you that extra part, even at the extent of kind of building or establishing credit. And there it is. The same lesson my parents taught me. If you didn't buy it outright, it's not really yours. 
Buying with cash is fine if, after all, your solid gold toilets and diamond-crusted dental floss, you still have a lot of zeros on the end of your bank account. For the rest of us, though, a pathological lack of trust in owing money to anything is like a pack of cigarettes to our financial health. Simply put, if you don't borrow, you don't build credit. If you don't build credit, your access to borrowing in times of need reduces your options in a real hurry. And remember, wealth is really just a matter of having options. So what all this belies, for Felicia and for me, is that neither of us grew up with any kind of financial education that would help us make informed choices to build financial stability, much less wealth. What worked for both of us, though, is that we took it upon ourselves to figure it out. But we still have our scars. And even if we didn't, figuring it all out is usually not how the story of the financially challenged goes, especially if you grew up in an environment where people don't trust banks and don't have access to loan products that help them establish good credit anyway either because they don't qualify or because they don't know how to find it. The pump I use to fill up my car looks a little tired. From inside this mini-mart, I actually can't tell if it's still working. Nobody gets gas here anymore. I can't say I blame them, especially since I'm one of the nobody. Inside, it's as bustling as ever. People ring up lottery tickets, snacks that I suspect are whole meals for a couple of people in here, and cigarettes and beer. I've never been in this store when someone wasn't buying cigarettes or beer. Not that I judge, I just notice. In neighborhoods like mine, sales of products that have warning labels on them are usually pretty brisk. Heading out of town and on my way to Columbia, it's hard to not notice something else. Wherever I pass clusters of stores that sell bad-for-you substances with warning labels on them, I also pass clusters of short-term, small-dollar lenders, pawn shops, title loan places, check-cashing joints, which don't come with warning labels on them, something the guy I'm in Columbia to see has noticed for himself. We try to protect people from opioid, tobacco, alcohol use, and do not completely accuse them for their behavior. We understand these are dangerous products. Um, I guess it would be fair to treat dangerous financial products in a similar way, but I don't think we do. I'm sorry, where are my manners? This is Dr. Oscar Inja, professor of finance at the University of South Carolina. We actually we clearly don't because the equivalent of FDA doesn't exist in financial products, right? There is no requirement that says, oh, here's a warning label that like for tobacco, this causes cancer, and there aren't the same type of requirements for financial products, at least yet, at least in this country. Whether warning labels make a big difference or not isn't really the point. They're all over cigarettes and booze, and the last time I checked, cigarettes and booze make billions for tobacco and alcohol companies every year. But Dr. Inja is the first person I've spoken to who correlates the hazards of bad loans to the hazards of certain substances. A key difference, of course, is that if you or I get a little too fond of certain substances, people tend to see it as a health issue. There's lots of help because people don't see it as all our fault. We don't blame people for not knowing how medicine works, how their bodies work. We don't blame people, or at least completely, for addiction that are caused by substances, right? Uh, to some extent we do, but not 100%. We understand that those products have inherent dangers, 
they can victimize people, especially the way they are sold, the way they are marketed. Um, but for some reason, there's this big disconnect there with financial products, because the same way medicine, uh, health, drugs, pharmaceuticals can be very complicated for people to completely understand how they work, why they work, and how they should be used cautiously, the same problem exists for financial products, but we seem to completely ignore that. The same problem might exist, but there's a complicating factor in here, age. Clearly, there are rules, laws against consuming alcohol and tobacco under 21, but these financial products are available over the age of 18. So you can't buy cigarettes, you can't buy alcohol, but you can take out a financial product uh, that can ruin your credit and put you under debt for a very long period of time. Um, so again, I think there's some inconsistency there, the way we treat that age between 18 and 21. You can't do certain things, but you can take out a loan at very, very high interest rate. I'm not sure that's right. I know we talked about this before, but it bears repeating that 18-year-olds and sound financial decisions rarely mix. Then again, if you're one of Dr. Inge's business or finance majors, you probably have a leg up. But there, of course, is the rub. Most of the people you'll find getting a title loan or a payday loan or really any kind of loan won't be economists in training. Nor will they be too well-versed in financial contracts that are full of numbers and rates and compound interest. Most people cannot do that math. And the numbers can be very misleading. Uh, you know, this is one of the most important financial literacy lessons that I teach in my large intro to finance class. And some students are lucky enough to come from high schools where they get some lessons in financial literacy. So they learn about compound interest, but most people do not have an appreciation for compound interest. And we usually teach it in a way like the magic of compound interest. Look how good it is, save, start saving early. But there's a dark side to compound interest. If you're on the wrong side of it, it's an avalanche. You can bury under the huge amount of debt and just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on to the point where you just can't get out of it anymore. And that's very hard to appreciate without crunching the numbers or without forcing some sort of mechanism of disclosure and education to let consumers know about the dangers that are associated with this product. Oh, cupcakes are ready. You want one? I'll tell you what, you can eat one now or hold on to it for half an hour. If you can hang on and not bite into it, you can have two. I wish I could say I came up with this deal on my own, but I didn't. It's actually just called the cupcake test, which I respect for its straightforwardness. It's something Doug Waddell told me about. Dr. Waddell is a psych professor at USC's Institute for Mind and Brain, just up the road from Dr. Inge's office. Usually this kind of thing is done with four-year-olds, and it's meant to throw a little light on something called risk aversion, how a person balances the fear of losing something with the possibility of gaining something when there's a sure thing at stake. And when it's actually done with four-year-olds, something kind of interesting happens. And in those experiments, they found that performance in that as five-year-olds or four-year-olds when you were there predicted some of your success in economically in society 20 years down the road. Really? Yeah. If you're too grown up for cupcakes, I don't know what to tell you, but you can also just test risk aversion with cold, hard cash. We call this temporal discounting. And so, for example, if I offered you in one of our experiments, you could have $100 right now, or in six months, you could have $150. You would think, from a rational, economical point of view, go for this 150 in six months. That's a 100% rate of return annually. 
But instead, the vast majority of people choose the $100 now. Unscrupulous hucksters know all about the psychology of impulse control and sales pressure. So do unscrupulous lenders, especially when the person sitting in front of them is out of better options. As Dr. Waddell sees it, the danger of high-interest loan products to people with limited options are a heady mix of fear and power. Well, in those loan offices, they're, they're taking advantage of a differential position of power. They have the money that you need. Yeah. And so they're not necessarily trying to be your friend. I'm sorry, I couldn't wait a half hour. <clears throat> anyway, sorry, before we bug out of Columbia, we got to drop back in on Dr. Oscar Inja because he said something to me that I cannot shake. See, all this academic theory about how people behave, risk aversion, and dangerous loans has one major flaw, which Dr. Inja himself acknowledges. So there is definitely concern that vulnerable communities are being targeted. Uh, when you look at the outcomes of how these products use, is it helping these communities? Is it hurting these communities? I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to what's the outcome? And potentially, they could be benefiting. This could be playing an important role in unbanked communities uh, that otherwise they don't have credit cards, they don't have these bank accounts. So for them, this could be very useful. It really would be easy to think of payday lenders, title lenders, cash advance lenders as unrepentant loan sharks and predators, which some of them are. And it also would be really easy to see borrowers who use these short-term products as victims of slick sales pressure. And for sure, some of them are. But one thing being a reporter has taught me is if one side of an argument seems a little too agreeable, you're missing something. The placement of short-term lending operations in areas where people live paycheck to paycheck is no accident. Remember this from our friend David, who used to work for a title lender? The target audience, as you put it, is the median household income population, and that's where they're going to put these locations but just because people take out short-term loans doesn't necessarily mean they're uninformed about what they're getting into. A Harris poll taken of 1,000 short-term borrowers in 2013 showed that 9 out of every 10 felt that payday loans offered through regulated storefront lenders was a valuable credit option in times of financial shortfall. And that same percentage said they'd carefully weighed their benefits and risks before signing for a loan. Now, yeah, it's an old poll, and yeah, polls do need to be taken with a dash of salt, and yeah, there's a big caveat in there about regulated storefront lenders as opposed to apps on your phone, but 90% satisfaction is pretty far from most statistical margins of error. The other half of this is, after all this, after all the academic theories and cupcakes and targets and polls, some people do not have other options. There is this major problem in economics we call adverse selection, uh, where the customers you're targeting are those that are completely rejected by all these other institutions uh, from traditional banks. And if they have a credit card, they would probably use credit card because the interest rates on those credit cards are still high, but not that crazy high. So you're basically left to a smaller community that's neglected or can't have access to financing from any other traditional channels. The ecosystem is so unique, and the group that targeted by payday loan is such a unique uh, group with certain characteristics and so high risk that it, it takes a certain type of institution to work with them. So here's where we need to get a POV from the industry itself. To do that, we're going to save on airfare and go online. I'm just messing with you. Sorry, we have high speed. Can you imagine? Our customers choose us because... 
We're cost competitive. We offer them multiple options where the law permits it. We are transparent and we give them credit. And I don't mean credit in terms of money, but I think we give them credit in terms of their ability to make their own decisions. Ed D'Alessio is the executive director of INFIN, the big dog national trade organization for lenders in the non-bank market based up in D.C. And as you might suspect, Ed's a pretty staunch advocate for his industry. He doesn't discuss short-term borrowers in terms of dupes and victims, but rather as people who need to do a set of life calculations that a lot of us don't. They are savvy people, intelligent people who are making do with a lot less than what many other people have available. So they have to be very precise with their calculations. And it's not just always a dollars and cents calculation. It's a calculation of what's best for them at that particular point in time. And if we are their best option, then they choose us. If there are other options available to them, they'll exercise that right. I have to admit, it's interesting to hear someone refer to short-term borrowers as savvy and intelligent and well-informed. Think what you want about the short-term lending industry or its advocates' takes on what it does. But I have to be honest, in the many months I spent talking to people about finance and debt for this podcast, Ed D'Alessio is the first and only one to give short-term borrowers credit for having an actual brain and the aptitude to understand the contracts they sign and the terms they agree to. And in the spirit of all this nuance, it's worth pointing out that the short-term borrower set is not made up entirely of people who don't have bank accounts. Many of our customers are also customers of banks and customers of credit unions. But it's still, they'll, they'll elect to use our products. Why would that be, you ask? Well, the short version is, banks keep bankers hours. Now true, you can do a lot of banking online these days, but there are still times when you need another person to be there before you can get hold of some extra money. Or maybe you can't get online because you live in one of the many areas of South Carolina where internet is still a pipe dream. And if you happen to run into a situation that demands money right now and you can't get online or to a bank or to a credit card, you have one place left to get money for your exigent circumstances. And what we're getting at here is actually something contentious. If you remember my drive out of Rock Hill a few minutes ago, you'll remember how I passed storefront after storefront after storefront offering short-term loans at higher than credit card interest, concentrated in one of the more well-heeled working-class neighborhoods of the city. That's contentious because some people think that that kind of convenience is a little too convenient. Dr. Inja and I talked about this back at the Darla Moore School of Business. People rarely search around for payday loans. It's not like something, okay, I'm going to sit down now, I need some cash, let me shop around, find the best deal. It's really a matter of convenience. It's a really matter of awareness, something that pops up, something like a storefront you just keep driving in front of, and then it's in your mind, like, oh, maybe one day, maybe one day. And then just one day you need it and you go there. So there's a really important convenience factor uh, to these products. For Dr. Inja, the ubiquity and easy access to short-term loan stores is insidious, something that, with the help of slick and frequent marketing, puts it in your head that these places are there to get easy money for whatever reason. Sometimes it's a real emergency. Sometimes it's for a Christmas present. To Ed D'Alessio, though, this kind of convenience is the point. Tell me another business that you would criticize as being too convenient, right? Usually convenience is an asset to a business. And I think consumers do value convenience. If it's too hard for them to get to a product or to utilize a product, then it probably doesn't work for them. 
I have to let Ed go because he's got to get back to work. It's late in the day, and he's already had a long slog of it, but we'll catch up with him again. In the meantime, I'm going to stay online for a minute because I'm looking for something. Ah, here we go. Dr. Reddit to the rescue. There's a term on here called existential claustrophobia. Now, I don't know if that's an officially recognized term, but essentially, it is the dread one feels when one's options start running out. Of the very few things I know about human beings, I know we don't like to feel powerless, and we get squirrely-burly whenever we feel like our options are dying. So, if we're going to talk about debt as a public health concern, we need to at least acknowledge the kinds of terrible things that getting backed into a financial corner can do to someone's mental health. And you know who knows all about that? Dr. Jin Hee Kim. A lot of research finds that worries, concerns, stress, anxiety, depression, mood disorder, substance use, or you know, drinking, or in a psychological functioning, sleep disorder, and then sometimes like attempted suicide or the other you know, more extreme cases. Dr. Kim is a professor of family science at the University of Maryland. We met her in episode one, where I mentioned she's an expert on the mental health strain wrought by debt. Well, Dr. Kim says an old school mainstay of debt psychology has changed. It used to be that people saw good debt, like mortgage or a student loan, as positive because we use these debts to further our lives. Well, some of the research now shows having debt itself has a negative impact. And it turns out debt affects men and women in different ways. So when I did the research with a couple relationship and their mental health with the financial stress, what we find was a woman is highly internalizing higher levels of stress from the same, same amount of debt or the financial stress overall. Men, on the other hand, were especially stressed over borrowing for their children, as in helping the kids with a down payment for a house or for co-signing a loan for college, or, as in the case of David Kenner, helping his son pursue a dream. There was a, 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 an event, I guess a recruiting event, came through town, and it was um, looking for the next whoever star, Nickelodeon star, whatever. And my son, I don't know, he probably was 10 12 at the time, he heard these commercials and, um, you know, he wanted to he wanted to go down and audition. You remember David Kenner, yeah? Barnwell County Councilman, we spoke to him before. Well, David and I ended up talking about what he calls his near miss with a title loan, stemming from his son's dreams of becoming a performer on TV. Now, it was a long conversation, so I'll have to nutshell it a bit here. But essentially, David was on good financial ground until auditions and callbacks and travel and headshots and hotels and all those things you have to pay for if you want to be a star set him back. The flip side kicker of that is I was actually in probably five to seven years paying off the original loan on the house. So, you know, I'm right on the edges of being being without a house payment, period. Uh, but having to do this now has put me back into another 20-year mortgage doing it, so creating another financial concern and or strain. To his son's credit, he gave it everything he had for a good while. It didn't pan out for him, and um, I guess he um, decided to break off his efforts, which left us kind of hanging out there what to do, but now we had the expense hanging on our head out of everything that we exhausted, and quite frankly, I think we exhausted at that point probably easily um, $35,000 over three to five years. To make sure this is clear, David doesn't regret trying to help his son chase a dream. But money don't give a fig about your kid's dreams. And after five years of spending it, 
the Kenners had a problem. Went to the credit union to get a, get a loan, consolidate a loan, to kind of put all these things to bed and just kind of work on paying off the one bill, you know, get, get these bills paid off. At this point now, I'm looking so bad on the books that they don't want to take a chance on me. And I remember one of the, uh, the, the ladies at the time to say, well, you can go down to um, one of these check cashing places or title loan places, and maybe they'll take a chance on you. To which I replied, you know, why would I want to dig myself further and further in a hole? So uh, quite frustrating, quite stressful. A handful of years ago, my therapist, Cherry, told me something I think about all the time. When you're angry at one of your parents, you're actually angry at the other one because it's the other one who lets you face the first one alone. What I'm driving at is most of you listening to this podcast are probably really angry at payday and title lenders because you think they're predators, mainly of the weakest members of our financial neighborhoods. I don't defend short-term lenders, but I also can't be unfair. So I wonder if Sherry would think that any of that anger at short-term lending is actually anger at the larger financial industry that turns its back on people like David Kenner and leaves them to face the world alone. Whatever the truth, it's hard to deny the stress that debt puts on our hearts. And stress, without question, is not healthy for our hearts. On the next episode of Indebted, the flip side of this equation, how our health affects our debts, and a look at the largest single factor putting South Carolinians at such bad financial straits. The majority of debt and collections are, are medical debt uh, on people's credit records. But the challenge is, is even more common in South Carolina, which is ranked second in the nation in terms of having the highest share of residents with uh, medical debt and collections. Bad medicine. Next time on Indebted. Indebted is a production of South Carolina Public Radio made possible by contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Our producer is A.T. Shire, executive producer Sean Birch, fact-checker Keelan Bailey. I'd like to thank my guests, Felicia Cuthbertson, Drs. Oscar Inja, Jin Hee Kim, and Doug Waddell. Thanks, too, to David Kenner and Ed D'Alessio, and, of course, David, our former title loan worker. Special thank you to you, Sherry, my former therapist from a long time ago, whose perspectives came in really handy for this episode. This and all episodes of Indebted are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org slash Indebted, where you can find further coverage on this state's debt ecosystem and where you can listen again and share as many times as you like. You can also subscribe to Indebted wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Morgan. I'll see you again in the next episode. Until then, be good to the world. Thank you.